Welcome back to the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, at hstebbings1996 on Instagram or on Snapchat at hstebbings. It'd be fantastic to see you there. But my word, what a week last week was with the official Sasta annual. For all of you that made it, it was fantastic to meet in person. We hope you loved it. And it was just amazing to see the community come together. Big hand to Jason Lemkin and the entire Sasta team for making it such a special event. However, back to business and the episode today and a very timely one as this startup just last week announced their 10 and a half million raise led by Scandinavian leaders Creandum, Sasta and support from previous guests of the show in the form of Michael Deering and Floodgate. So joining me in the hot seat today, I'm thrilled to welcome Olaf Mather, founder and CEO at Mixmax, the startup that allows you to be a sales pro, providing powerful analytics, automation and enhancements for your outbound communication and a product that's achieved almost the impossible in SaaS, true viral growth and a zero dollar CAC. As for Olaf, prior to Mixmax, he led the team that built Inkling Habitat, now adopted by the world's largest publishers. And before that, he was an entrepreneur and worked at Skype and McKinsey. I'd also want to say a big thank you to Jason Lemkin and Michelle Tandler at Thumbtack for the intro to Olaf today, without which this episode would not have been possible. But before we dive into the show today, if you have a digital product, whether it's mobile or web, Amplitude's product analytics helps you understand what your users are doing, iterate and ship product faster, and drive product metrics like engagement and retention. And Amplitude's analytics dashboards are so flexible, yet easy to use to answer any question that you have about user behavior, no SQL required. Top product teams at PayPal, Twitter, and HubSpot use Amplitude to get the insights they need to achieve their product goals. And you can download your free copy of the Product Analytics Playbook to get 155 pages and worksheets teaching you how to learn from your analytics data to build a really sticky product that grows your business. And you can check it out at amplitude.com forward slash Sasta. That really is a must. Likewise, we all know that user education is one of the most powerful ways to increase engagement and retention at scale, yet it's often put in the too hard basket. Well, Alevio is that powerful platform that exists to remove this burden, empowering your users to self-serve contextually relevant help via their support widget and embeddable elements, increasing retention and engagement whilst also reducing support load. And Alevio even tells you what content to add or fix and why based on usage trends from your users, preventing content rot and increasing coverage, which we all know is an ongoing challenge. You can also integrate with your existing support stack for content, access to live chats, support tickets and more. And you can discover why companies like Atlassian, AdRoll and Heap use Alevio for continuous user education with 20% off your first year at elev.io forward slash Sasta and use the coupon code GoHarry. I would love to see you use that. What a coupon code. But that's quite enough from me. So I'm now thrilled to hand over to Olaf Mather, founder and CEO at Mixmax. Good. That's perfect. Okay. I think we're warmed up. Olaf, it's absolutely brilliant to have you on the show today. Huge thanks to Jason Lemkin for the intro, but thank you, Olaf, for joining me today. Thanks, Harry. Really fun to be here. I'd love though to kick off today with a two to three minute bio of you and maybe how you made your way into the world of SaaS and that aha moment for you with Mixmax. So I'm a I'm a longtime longtime entrepreneur and I've always been a communications geek and I think that's what really led myself and my co-founders to create Mixmax. Uh, Mixmax was very much created out of frustration with how incredibly impoverished and dull the current kind of communications tool chain is, especially if you're in a customer facing role. We were kind of stuck with either email or CRM, just a bland lead list or account list, or if you get lucky, you get to jump on the phone or a video call. But we just have a vision of communication 
solutions and your customer interactions being exponentially richer and therefore you being more effective at your job and a better communicator. So that's what we're here to do. And, and Mixmatch does definitely make that process so much richer, uh, hence maybe for the reason of the incredible growth that you've seen. And I want to start on that theme of growth. We all obsess over it in SaaS and the hail Tom Tungus says that growth is the biggest determinant of value at IPO. So starting on that, you said before that customer success is the new marketing. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this and, and what you mean by this. The way we think about it is customer success should probably actually be your first non-product team hire, which it actually happily was in our case. I guess we're a little bit retrofitting a strategy on something that just happened to work out for us. But I think the, the reason why customer success is so important early in a company is kind of the first obvious reason in SaaS, right? You want to make your customers successful. But there's a second and a third reason, which I think is kind of often a little bit overlooked. And kind of the second reason for that is success just ends up being so much closer to the customer than your product team ever will be just out of sheer time constraints. So success can really be kind of an accelerator just to make your product team better in terms of channeling what's really important to your customers. And the third thing, and this is where it comes into growth overall, is success can be your first sales team in terms of knowing the customers really well. And this is especially the case if you have kind of a self-serve model or a freemium model or where customers can adopt your product really, really easily. And so the way we kind of think about success too is, as you said, customer success is the new marketing in that you'll get a lot of leverage from making your existing customers happy. They'll either refer people outside of your company or hopefully you'll be able to land and expand within your company. There's just so much the success team can do to help you grow faster. You mentioned there about the interaction with product. How do you see the right communications loop between customer success and product, so to speak, and kind of really iterating on that to make it better for that customer? Wonderful question. So this is something we're in constant experimentation with, and I can share kind of one or two things we do. So the first thing is that we're really religious about following up with customers. If you have a great relationship with your customers, they will give you a ton of product feedback. And this often is a various degrees of granularity, right? It could be like very granular feature feedback, or hopefully they're even telling you kind of big picture about things they're trying to achieve in their lives or with their work. So what we do very tactically is religious about following up with customers when we kind of build something where we've riffed off the inspiration they've given us. So whenever we have customer conversations, we're really diligent about documenting this. Very often we do this directly in our issue tracker. And that means when the product team closes an issue where we ship a new feature, we have you know a whole set of customers we follow up right when the feature hits production and we go, hey, Alice, we just shipped this thing that you asked for a month ago. And so then you've also re- got brand advocates, I guess, who'd love to feel a part of that product development journey and that their voice is being heard almost. Exactly. So in a way, it kind of creates a virtuous circle of feedback, right? Where we proactively reach out to get feedback, we get feedback, we act on that feedback. Customers rightfully should be heard and then helps them feel heard, which then makes them more inclined to inspire you on your product journey. So that's a big piece. The second piece that we do is we make sure success regularly feeds insights to the product team. So any kind of success meeting or even a sales call, anyone on the team is always open to join that. Their calendars are completely open. So anyone can listen in and kind of get a firsthand glance of how customers are doing. We also have during our weekly, what we call demo hour, where success feeds back, hey, here's some big issues customers are having now with the product or where we need to make it more usable or here are common feature requests we're hearing right now just to keep that communication channel really open. I would love to discuss 
discuss this element there because that all seems very structured and with a real framework around it. And you mentioned before that growth is not hacking. So what is growth to you then? And how does that kind of take shape? I think kind of fundamentally, when you think about growth, well, kind of the first thing you need before you can even have growth is you need product market fit. So without product market fit, it's just, I mean, that's just kind of the prerequisite for growth. And then it's kind of like, well, what kind of growth do you want? So are you looking for a number of customers? Are you looking for revenue? What's the core metric you're optimizing for? Now, if you're in consumer or in some SaaS businesses, you might just be optimizing for a number of customers. And then I guess kind of growth hacking might make a little bit more sense. But if you're in SaaS, I would kind of argue that what you really want to optimize for is revenue. And there, growth hacking is going to get you, it's kind of like a, a menu of various techniques and invite flows and what have you that boost your metrics by 10%, 20%, 30%, 40% if you're really good. The question we like to ask ourselves is, what can we do to drive a 100x improvement in the product or 500x, something that just unlocks or kind of can automate entirely new workflows for our customers? And that's kind of where we don't really think about growth as hacking. We think about growth as how can we get the highest fidelity qualitative insights about our customers, mainly success in sales. And from there, how does that let us expand our addressable market? Well, speaking of that kind of expansion of the addressable market, we had Des Trainer on the show from Intercom the other day. And he said that you can't be everything to everyone, which also links to kind of a comment that you've made before about displeasing potential customers means that you're actually on the right path. I'd love to talk about this and maybe why this kind of counterproductive displeasing customers means you're on the right path actually takes shape to you. Yeah, I guess that was a little bit polemically phrased. To go back to your prank comment there, what you were saying about Desk Trainer, you know, it can't be everything to everyone. I mean, obviously spot on. The area where I think it's helpful to think about expanding your addressable market is once you have a customer who you're helping, so in our case, sales success recruiting, what are their core workflows that are really adjacent to the way they're using your product today? And how can you integrate your product into those workflows or subsume those workflows entirely, thereby expanding mindshare, timeshare, share of wallet with your customers? So it's really quite different from trying to be everything to everyone. What you are trying to be is be a heck of a lot more for someone very specific. And so the common around kind of displeasing potential customers might might sound a little bit at odds with that. I think what I'm getting at here is you need to make sure you have people who absolutely love what you're doing. And as long as you have people who love what you're doing, it's fine if there are haters. Let the haters hate. So, And it's even fine if these haters are within your core customer segment. I think it's much more important to do something that's a little bit opinionated, that kind of gets people's emotions going because it helps your product stick and it shows that you're in an area people care about. Is there an element of hater control, maybe to prevent uh, brand damage or just to kind of prevent discontent more widely? Is there an element of hater control or is it kind of let the haters hate and make the people who love it, love it more? I think we're kind of firmly in the camp of let people who love it, love it more. Perhaps it would be helpful to give kind of a concrete example of this from the world of Mixmax. An early feature we launched with, which was kind of not that value added, but more kind of spoke to the ethos of the company and the brand was people share a ton of links over email. They often do this with customers. Links are the worst thing in messages because they bring you out of context. So we said when we started the company two and a half years ago, we said, hey, rather than just showing the link, let's show a gorgeous visual preview of this link that gives the recipient all the context they need without necessarily having to click on the link and context switch. And so when we first launched this, this was such a dividing line feature. We had like people who absolutely loved it in our core segment and we had people who hated it, who thought it looked unprofessional and whatnot and everything needed to look plain text and boring. And so we 
said, hey, it's fine if you don't like it, as long as there are people that really, really love it. And so I think that's actually helps give some personality and drive stronger brand advocacy in the product. I think the level of kind of discontent ultimately probably was not on the level of hate, right? But more like this isn't for me. But it clearly showed that the product was very much for a whole set of other people. And it's interesting, by the way, because this sense is a feature that's been like widely adopted even by products like iMessage. So it definitely hit the mainstream sense. No, absolutely. And it really drove kind of brand advocacy for you. So much so that as I spoke to Jason earlier, he spoke about you achieving true virality and naught dollars as a customer acquisition cost. So I'd love to hear you talk about virality. And before you've mentioned, I think it was on Twitter, what doesn't work. So in terms of virality, what doesn't work? So I think the one on this point, we don't really do any growth hacking. So we've done some analyses on this, but the one thing that doesn't seem to work really well is kind of attribution where there's no value to the recipient. So the basic version of this, we were like, oh, hey, Hotmail spread because it, you know, it was whatever sent with Hotmail. It's kind of this like whatever .com 1.0 era myth or perhaps it was true. So we were like, hey, let's put sent with Mixmax in the footer or signature of all emails and Mixmax is going to spread like wildfire. Now, it turns out, as far as we can tell that, you know, the verdict's really out on that and it's probably barely a net positive. We get some new customers that see that signature in the footer and then eventually check out Mixmax. The flip side, however, is we get a ton of people who go, oh, this is so annoying and really spammy. It just turns me off. I don't want it. It doesn't add value. So where it's just a sheer attribution where the recipient isn't getting any value from Mixmax, the attribution just doesn't make a lot of sense. And on the theme of growth, we mentioned kind of metrics earlier and, and how to think about them. How do you think about metrics maybe from a meta perspective and the right amount to focus on and how to really drive efficiency within the core metrics for you? Yep. I love this topic on SaaS because I'm still waiting for a SaaS entrepreneur to create great software for not just product analytics, but also financial metrics and being able to tie the two together really nicely. And this will tie into how we think about metrics. So for us, there's one core North Star metric and that is revenue, period. Now, this might sound really facile and kind of silly and well, of course, revenue should be your metric and the one thing you care about. Well, I think there's actually like something a little bit deeper underneath this and kind of the value of focusing maniacally on just one metric is actually the kind of sanity it drives within your team. And so it avoids a lot of debate and helps short circuits. And by debate, I mean kind of like spinning in circles or being indecisive about what to do. So for example, you might have a debate in your company if you're focusing on a couple of metrics of, hey, you know, should we build this feature might help us reduce activity churn by X, but this other feature might help us increase revenue by Y. Which feature should we build? Or metric, it guides all decision making. Exactly, because you don't have to be in this comparator of comparing things that can't really be compared, unless you have an absurdly sophisticated model, in which case your model is probably wrong either way. But trying to compare a reduction or an increase in kind of functional activity in your app versus some prospective revenue gain, you just can't. So it's really nice just to be able to short circuit the conversation and say, hey, revenue is what we're focusing on, and therefore we're going to build this feature because we have a strong hypothesis it's going to increase revenue by X. No, absolutely. In terms of kind of revenue increase, you have two different types of customers, both free and paid. And I'd love to hear, and so would Jason, actually, this was one of his questions. How have you found they differ in, in terms of many different aspects from onboarding to product interaction to support? What's the kind of comparative analysis on free to pay? 
rate really interesting. I would, I would have to think about that. I think the big difference in free versus paid, and it's a little bit paradoxical that I'm saying this as a freemium business, is I think the quality of feedback and insight you'll get from paid customers is exponentially higher. And the reason for that, of course, and this is kind of like just very basic SaaS 101, is they've actually committed to your product. They're a, a real stakeholder in, in a material way. So we definitely see that some of our biggest accounts have the kind of highest quality, highest quality feedback just because they're more engaged. The other benefit, perhaps, which comes a little bit less on paid, but more, is it a bigger account versus is there a single paid, is bigger accounts tend to have someone that's kind of the point person for your solution. And that just means you can have a little bit of a kind of quality filter as well before it reaches you. So it just helps you a little bit operationally. So that would probably be the, the biggest difference that comes to mind. Now, absolutely. Speaking of those biggest accounts, I'd love to hear a little more about your move, maybe slightly more upmarket into the upper market enterprise even segment that you've been entering recently. So I'd love to hear how you found that experience going upmarket and maybe what were the core challenges? So our typical upgrade path, and this goes very much with us being a freemium model, is we typically have people, well, when they start there on a paid trial, hopefully they upgrade or they might go on free. And then come a couple months later, they're upgrading to a paid plan. Eventually they get more and more of their team really excited about the product and six to nine months down the line, which is by the way, time frame we'd love to shorten, they get their entire team on board. So for us going, as you phrased it, up market is a little bit less of this kind of traditional SaaS model of, hey, we're going to hire a huge enterprise team and go up market. What we really like to figure out is kind of two things. One is A, when people are on a trial, how can we make them absurdly successful day one so that they want to get their entire team on board and we get their entire team on board really, really early? That's kind of what up market means for us, which is share of wallet within an account. Is time to value crucial, do you think, in SaaS uh, what, products? Is what do you mean by va- time to value? Time to value, providing value instantly. So instead of load all your data in, let us do our work, and then a week later you'll start deriving value. Is it kind of today I feel the value? Is that crucial, do you think, in SaaS products? Absolutely. I would think the one the one kind of nuance that I would add is I think it's awesome if, I mean, obviously you need to add value instantly. I think it's really wonderful when you successively peel back kind of the onion of product value and discover new layers of delight as you kind of mature and continue using a product because you get a sense that the product's growing with you. And so I think that's a really important dimension of product delight that's often overlooked. In terms of the kind of team behind both this revenue machine and this beautiful product, I'd love to discuss kind of some opposing ideas around the value stay surrounding the effectiveness of remote teams with some suggesting on-site full-time really is the only way. And then many others suggesting the opposite view. So how do you think about kind of constructing that right internal org structure with Mixmax? What are your thoughts on that? On kind of how to set up your team, I really think it kind of goes back to what we spoke about with, you know, success, even growth, and that is just the value of experimentation. So the joy of having a startup, and especially when you're kind of, I mean, like a 20-ish person team like we are, is there's so much you can do and experiment with because you're not this huge icebreaker or tanker. (laughs) So today at Mixmax, we're kind of like, we have three different configurations in the team. So firstly, we have an office in San Francisco where everyone works full-time in the office. We don't have work from home. The second piece is we have a couple of remote full-time employees that work across the globe. Mm -hmm. And the third kind of org is we have a couple of remote tech support contractors that work more or less on an hourly basis. So three very different configurations, and we all kind of live and breathe the, the same product and org. Now, the interesting thing with this is when we started the company, we were kind of, what well, you mentioned, 
everyone's going to be in San Francisco full time. Done. Then it was just really interesting because we got inbound from someone, an incredible engineer, and we were like, oh, this looks really interesting, but we really don't want to do the remote thing because we had had negative experience of it in past jobs. However, we were like, hey, this looks like a really smart person. Let's see how it works. And so this person interviewed really well. We were really impressed and we decided to try it. And retroactively, it's been one of the best decisions we made in terms of how we set up and structure the company. Pants, what do you think made that decision and that process of working with him so successful? Is it the way you communicate kind of roadmap? Is it the way that you create culture between him and the rest of the team? What do you think it is that makes that successful versus maybe unsuccessful attempts elsewhere? Great question. I can share some tactical things and something that actually didn't work as well. So firstly, this person and everyone who kind of works remote on the team has worked remote in the past. And they're typically a little bit older than other folks on the team or just have a little bit more experience. So they kind of know how to be productive on their own. They've worked remotely in the past. They have their own kind of home office or remote office setup. They're in more or less the same time zone or time zones that don't differ by, you know, 12 hours. So we make sure we have at least four hours of face to quote unquote, like FaceTime or like Slack time overlap during the day. So we can remove any roadblocks as they come immediately. And I think the third thing here is we don't have a full remote office. Now, I'm really curious if at some point in time we will at Mixmax and we were very well might, but there's kind of no dynamic of the, you know, New York versus San Francisco office or the Ukraine versus, you know, San Francisco dev team, which is a dynamic, sadly, I've seen instill itself in, in other companies. So we don't have that kind of office thing, right? It's individuals who work with the overall team. Just picking up on one point that you said from the beginning about you don't have a work from home if you're kind of based in San Francisco. I see it more and more with founders today. Why do you maybe not engage with this with Mixmax? Well, I think there are kind of a couple of reasons for that. Firstly, we think it actually accelerates people's development trajectory just from being able to learn from other people in the office directly. There's kind of another benefit. It just shortens communication overhead. There is some overhead to communicating remote. And there are actually, I would say, pretty few people that do that really well. And so there's kind of a lot of onus both on us, but also on kind of our remote teammates who are excellent communicators. And so you kind of get that for free in a way. And the kind of third piece is we're able to kind of create cohesion and a fuller culture that way. No, absolutely. It does make sense, uh, especially with them being in the same city. It seems uh, seems unthinkable not to. But I would love to dive into uh, Olaf's 60-second faster. So I say a short statement, and then you give me your immediate thoughts. How does that sound, Olaf? Let's do it. So how to cost-effectively deal with inbound hiring applications? It's funny that you mentioned that since our first remote hire was inbound. So this will be a product plug, but we, of course, use Mixmax for this. So typically, this can be longer than 60 seconds. The short answer is Mixmax. <laughs> the longer answer is the received notion with inbound is it's low quality and it's not worth the opportunity cost for you to scan them through to find the like diamonds in the rough. Now, there is a really easy, cost-effective way to do this. And what you want to do with inbound is find those diamonds, right? Those diamonds are very often highly motivated. So as long as you put up a kind of a pretty high bar for entry for inbound apps, you're able to filter out people that are just spraying and praying. So what we do is we have kind of a series of instructions. Someone has to send a particular email to us to a particular address. This via the MixMix rules engine automatically triggers an email to them with an embedded survey where they have to answer some logistical questions, which then, depending on role, triggers kind of a take-home exercise or a coding challenge. So we actually only touch an inbound application once it's gone, already gone through two or three steps in the process. Yeah, once they've committed that time up front, that makes a lot of sense. Yep. Why should only customers support read and answer tickets? 
Other functions can read tickets. I don't think it's worth the time for other functions to write these tickets because that's kind of what customer success is great at, is writing really succinct and very concise and clear replies. I do, however, think that everyone in the org should do should join for a customer visit. And this is kind of because, especially on the product team, product teams can easily get stuck in their own ivory tower. And I say this as a product person myself. And to some extent, I think it's necessary to be an ivory tower to build an amazing product. But what's amazing when you do a customer visit is you get a sense for how you actually fit into people's workflows. Any customer is going to be using, you know, 15 other pieces of software together with yours. And it's really important to understand and get a sense for A, how important is your software? And B, how does it fit in with these other 15 softwares? What do you know now that you wish you'd known when you started Mixmax, Olaf? I think a learning for us has been to hire ahead of needs versus perhaps waiting for things to somewhat break and then hire to fix those breakages. And that's, of course, a little bit of an art in startup land, right? Know when you need to resource something fully. No, absolutely. And also just, I think, maybe also in cash flow management and kind of predicting runways and how that changes with subsequent hires. Absolutely. And that's actually how we stumbled upon the kind of third remote team we have, which is the remote kind of tech support folks, because originally it started out with we had more work than we could handle. We didn't really have a budget to hire another full-time person in San Francisco. I'm not surprised. <laughs> I know how expensive they are. But what is the least discussed but most worthy topic in SaaS, do you think? So like mine this might a... be mine might be like enterprise pricing negotiations. <laughs> right, right. I'm a slight enterprise um, geek. Yep. So I think the main, the main problem to me with SaaS is that it's too big of a category. I would love for someone to do some deep thinking on how we might split it up and start to elucidate fundamental structural differences between various types of businesses in SaaS. No, I think that's a very fair perspective. It's all-encompassing today. But I would love then to finish on your biggest advice to SaaS founders starting out in the industry and with the knowledge from Mixmax, what you'd impart to them. I mean, I think in general, I'm just like very, very, very excited about SaaS because I think there's so much that's so fundamentally broken in everything you have to do at work today. (laughs) (laughs) And there is so much that computers should be doing that they're not. Perhaps my overall advice would be think about how you can enrich humans at work and how you can make them more effective and expressive. And start with that as kind of a philosophical kind of guiding light versus thinking about how can we replace humans by computers. Well, Olaf, as I said, I I heard many great things from Michael Deering and from Jason. So it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show today. And I so appreciate you taking the time out to join me. This was really fun. Thanks so much, Harry. Such a fantastic guest to have on the show. And again, a huge thank you to Olaf for giving up the time today to appear on the show. Some very exciting times ahead with the new round. And if you'd like to see more from Olaf, you can follow him on Twitter at Olaf Stir. That's O-L-O-F-S-T-E-R. Likewise, we'd love to see you behind the scenes here at Sasta. You can follow me on Snapchat at hstebbings with two Bs or on Instagram at hstebbings1996. It'd be fantastic to see you there. But before we leave you today, if you have a digital product, whether it's mobile or web, Amplitude's product 
analytics helps you understand what your users are doing, iterate and ship product faster, and drive product metrics like engagement and retention. And Amplitude's analytics dashboards are so flexible, yet easy to use to answer any question that you have about user behavior. No SQL required. Top product teams at PayPal, Twitter, and HubSpot use Amplitude to get the insights they need to achieve their product goals. And you can download your free copy of the Product Analytics Playbook to get 155 pages and worksheets teaching you how to learn from your analytics data to build a really sticky product that grows your business. And you can check it out at amplitude.com forward slash Sasta. That really is a must. Likewise, we all know that user education is one of the most powerful ways to increase engagement and retention at scale, yet it's often put in the too hard basket. Well, Alevio is that powerful platform that exists to remove this burden, empowering your users to self-serve contextually relevant help via their support widget and embeddable elements, increasing retention and engagement, whilst also reducing support load. And Alevio even tells you what content to add or fix and why, based on usage trends from your users, preventing content rot and increasing coverage, which we all know is an ongoing challenge. You can also integrate with your existing support stack for content, access to live chat, support tickets, and more. And you can discover why companies like Atlassian, AdRoll, and Heap use Alevio for continuous user education with 20% off your first year at elev.io forward slash Sasta and use the coupon code GOHARRY. I would love to see you use that. What a coupon code. As always, we so appreciate all your support and I cannot wait to bring you next week's episode.